1: Last week, as you recall, the incorrigible Dr. Smith had once again slipped away from his assigned chores at the campsite. At this moment, however, neither he nor the other members of our space family were aware that they were shortly to encounter an incredible mechanical creature from a far distant alien world.
2: Don's been looking all over for you. He wants you to help him with some work at the drill site.
1: Work? But,
3: my dear, I am working. Um,
2: and just what, may I ask, are you doing?
3: Sit down, my dear, and I'll show you. Now then, what do you see up there? Nothing? Precisely. But when there is something up there, a rescue mission, perhaps, I'll be the one to see it and quickly alert the camp.
2: Oh, Dr. Smith, you're incredible. (laughs) Absolutely incredible.
3: Indeed. Don't you ever want to leave this ghastly planet?
2: Of course I do. But it's living in a dream world, Dr. Smith, to ever think a rescue mission from Earth can ever find us here.
3: Perhaps not from Earth. But at this point, I'd welcome any form of intelligent life that might conceivably help us. Uh, hands across outer space, so to speak.
2: I think I'd better let you get back to your work.
3: Oh, yes, yes, my dear. Eternal vigilance, yes. <laughs>
0: Welcome back, folks, for Episode 10 of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm still Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about, can you believe it, the 10th broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled, The Sky is Falling. Time flies when you're having fun. Yeah, and I'm having fun. And I was looking forward to watching this one again. Um, Is this one that you remembered?
4: No, I had no recollection of this one. Uh, Except for... You know, I I kind of remember something about the landing site that was kind of weird about it. But we'll talk about that when we see it. But that's the only thing I remember about it. So this is one I saw as a kid, but I have hardly any recollection of it whatsoever. I mean,
0: nothing except this one prop. Yeah. Well, it's good. It's fresh for you. Before we get into it, a few production notes. There were two writers credited for the teleplay in this one, Herman Groves and Barney Slater, and the story was credited by Herman Groves as well. Now, Groves was 38 at the time, and he had previously written mostly TV westerns, and this was actually his second assignment for Lost in Space. The first was to draft two treatments for the never-produced Refuge of the Damned that we talked about last week. After that project, was quickly dropped, he got this assignment. He developed the story outline and the initial teleplay for The Skies Falling, but then was let go by Alan because it was felt that he wasn't connecting with the new family friendly direction the series was heading.
4: Oh, too bad, because that's probably, you know, one of the neatest things about the first season, is it had that scare factor going. Oh,
0: well. Yeah. Well, he did go on to become quite the prolific television writer. He worked on a variety of series, uh, as varied as Vegas and Battlestar Galactica, but as far as I could find, he never worked for Alan again.
4: My God, if he did Battlestar Galactica, he was overcompensating for trying to be too family-friendly. I thought that series was just painful to watch. That little
0: kid with the robot dog, I mean, I always wanted to shoot it. Yeah, I've put a lot of that one out of my mind, so some of that stuff I don't really remember. The other writer, Barney Slater, was 42, and he wrote 22 episodes of Lost in Space, second only to Peter Packer. He was a well-respected movie screenwriter, but by this time, he had fully made the transition to writing for television. Alan brought him in to do a rewrite of Grove's original script, and the direction that he gave Slater was to get some more action into it and tone down the seriousness of the plot. And to me, the story still comes off as not that action-packed or light-hearted So you're saying he said, add more action
4: and make it less serious. Correct. Okay, yeah. Well, it's hard to—I thought it was a pretty serious plot, this one uh, was, so I I can't imagine how it could have been more serious. Yeah.
0: Well, Slater would go on to also write one episode of Time Tunnel, but he was quite prolific on Lost in Space. The director was Sobey Martin, who was fifty-six, and you might recall he's the director who had the reputation for shouting "action" and then quickly falling asleep in his director's chair. No comment on, on his directing ability, but he was he was well liked by Irwin Allen. That actually makes sense, though. You know, yeah. I mean that that explains
4: why the aliens don't talk. You know, so he could just say "action" and he could take a nap while they're doing their scenes because it's all <laughs> nice and quiet.
0: <laughs> The episode was filmed from the 19th through the 26th of October, 1965. And this was the second effort for Martin on Lost in Space. He had directed The Hungry Sea, and he was the first to finish an episode on schedule. And he more or less did it again on this episode, even without the benefit of all that pilot footage. He finished at six and one-quarter days of shooting. And as I say, Martin would be rewarded for his efforts with a total of 14 directing assignments on Lost in Space. The episode aired on Wednesday night, November seventeenth. 1965 and there was no summer repeat all the regular characters are featured on this one and we got three guest stars tonight don matheson was 36 and he played the father of the alien colonists who we only discover at the end credits is named red snow red snow that's hard to say um Before starting his acting career, he had served with distinction in the Korean War, earning a Bronze Star Medal and a Purple Heart for Bravery in Action. After the military, he had a a brief career as a police officer in Detroit, and he left that life to pursue a career as an actor. He only had a couple of small roles before starring in this episode of Lost in Space. He did uh, an episode of The Alfred Hitchcock Hour and McHale's Navy. And he would actually come back later in Lost in Space in the second season to play the android IDAC in the episode... Revolt of the Androids. Now, apparently, Hmm. mm, yeah, Uh, Alan liked Matheson, and he would later feature him on an episode of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, and eventually he was cast for Land of the Giants in the recurring role of Mark Wilson. He got paid a whopping $750 for not saying a line of dialogue in this episode.
4: Yeah, I, uh, I wonder if he uh, knew that going in. I mean uh, he thought this was going to be its big break and then it's sort of like, so uh, where's my dialogue here? You know, Here's your script and it's, you're standing here and you're giving this expression. <laughs> I kind of like to see the script you know, I mean the mime direction must have been kind of interesting.
0: Yes, I, it must have been. Playing the alien mother, Moella, was the French-born former model, Francois Ruggieri. She was 27 and as you say, without any dialogue either, she didn't have to worry about her french accent she had done two episodes of voyage to the bottom of the sea before this and went on to perform in several other well-known tv series of the era including the wild wild west mission impossible and later night gallery she only got 350 dollars for her part in this oh boy somebody's got a big lawsuit brewing here And finally, the nine-year-old Eddie Rawson played the alien boy named Lunon. He was one of those child actors who never graduated to adult roles. His credits for TV and film ran from 1961 through 1968, with the most notable roles in the movie Cool Hand Luke and the TV series The Fugitive. Now
4: tell me something that's unusual about this child actor. Did he actually grow up and not overdose from drugs or something? or?
0: Uh, Actually, it's a sad story. He died young, and I don't recall exactly what... uh, I think he died at the age of like 32 or 34. I'd have to check to be sure, but it it, it was something... I don't know if it was an accident or something like that, but it wasn't directly related to the fact that he never went on to be an actor but that's kind of a that's kind of a downer
4: it's uh, something about child actors i mean if you really don't want your kid to die in a nursing home just push them into a career in acting and you know you'll be lucky if they make 30 seems to be a trend for sure yeah very sad of course bill mummy and the lost in space crowd is a exception to that i mean they've all done quite well
0: i mean as far as decent lives and everything yes yeah thank goodness Okay, well, let's get into the story here. The teaser opens with the narrator catching us up from last week's cliffhanger. We see Dr. Smith reclining next to a rock when Judy approaches to tell him that Don has work for him. Of course, he explains that he is working, watching the skies for any sign of a rescue ship.
4: Yes, and of course, uh, Smith is dutifully not only watching the skies, but spinning his tales at how hard he's working to alert the family of the future rescue attempt, which he's, he's going to spot any moment now. But Judy's not having any of that.
0: No, she's resigned to the idea that there'll never be a rescue ship for Earth. And Smith says, well, perhaps not. He'll take uh, help from anyone, even aliens. And he uses that phrase, hands across outer space, which was kind of an allusion to that old uh, phrase, hands across the water, that described cooperation between Europe and the U.S. after World War II. And there were a lot of other things that reminded me of sort of the Cold War tensions of the 1960s between the U.S. and the Soviets. But I did think it's ironic that Smith says in that statement, you know, oh, he'll take help from anyone, because as this story unfolds, he's cast in the role of sort of the hawkish nativist.
4: Well, uh, you bring up the hands across the water and hands across the universe, and that ties into something that we joked about not too long ago that we didn't mention in the the derelict story, which is that we've always gone off the assumption that Smith was working for a foreign government, but we never mentioned the possibility. That maybe he was working for a foreign entity, as in out of space entity. And maybe he didn't even know it, but, you know, uh, he was working for someone else. What if he was working for some alien force that was trying to keep the Earth people from leaving Earth? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense in Derelict because he was clearly disturbed when he saw that the ship was not from Earth. I mean... he believed that they were Earth people on board until he saw the aliens, and then he, he kind of freaked out. But what if he was approached by an emissary who appeared as a human but really was an alien and corrupted him in order to sabotage Jupiter 2? Just throwing that out there doesn't really have anything to do with tonight's episode, but it's definitely a, a footnote worth considering retroactively looking back and looking forward as well the Lost in space background and Smith's motivations.
0: Yeah, it would have been a a real funny uh, turn of events if it turned out he had been working for Aliens all along. And and that would even be more delicious if it turned out he didn't know it. So that's kind of an interesting concept.
4: And the, and the thing that got us thinking about that was in the original treatment of the Refuge of the Damned, the aliens they were made to look like the creatures very similar to the invaders from the fifth dimension. But in the trading card set it makes a reference, a direct reference to Smith working for these aliens to sabotage the Jupiter 2. So there is some basis for it, although you can never trust trading cards for having the inside scoop on a show story because sometimes they just make this stuff up. You know. Oh, is that right? They just <laughs> sure.
0: somebody the trading card company yeah. just writes that. Uh,
4: yeah, if you go and you get the Outer Limits card set, you're not going to find anything similar to the actual. I mean, they just you, you'll just see pictures and they inspire some wild story by the copywriter. But for the most part, uh, it did seem like there was a lot of stuff in there. That was taken directly from the show, including the fact that the Jupiter 2 leaves on October 16th, is it, 1997. And, uh, you know, they had a lot of details that were clearly taken from the script. So they had the ability to use story ideas from the script. That wasn't a problem, as it was with some of the other card series where they they went off the reservation and just made things up whole cloth. So uh, uh, an interesting concept. I don't know how you would ever find an answer to that question, but it certainly is an interesting question.
0: Yeah, it really is. In any event, Judy decides to leave Smith to his, quote, work, and no sooner does she depart than we hear a strange mechanical sound, and the robot warns us.
1: Approach of alien object approach of alien object do be still can't you see i'm trying to
3: relax another word and i'll remove your power pack
0: see this little crab-like droid approaching and smith is frozen in horror it wobbles right up to him in that goofy claw that it's got i mean it's kind of menacing really actually it just the claw practically grabs his lip and he screams
1: keep away from me
3: Get away. Oh, please, please. I'll do anything you want. Only let me go.
0: But it doesn't really harm him. He It sort of backs off a little bit and then he stands up starts to run back to the ship. Yeah, he makes some sort of comment about, you know, don't hurt me I
4: have, I have superior intelligence, I could be of help. <laughs> yeah. And then he runs off. Yeah. But it's worth mentioning that he he sh- shushes the robot to be quiet and that's how this alien is able to sneak up on him. And the other thing that's interesting is the way that it approaches the camera is down low looking up at the probe in a, in a way that makes it look a lot bigger than it actually is. When it gets right there in the same frame and you see how small it is, is almost comical, because it's sort of like, wait a minute, I thought this was like some giant tank, and now it's like this little thing that looks like the size of a picnic basket, and Smith is totally freaking out over it. But you can't help but wonder, you know, geez, if you're that scared of it, why not just tell
0: the robot to fry it with 50,000 volts, you know? But he doesn't think of that. No, he's uh, in a panic. He's in a panic, and he was down at ground level, so it probably looked a little bit more menacing, as, as opposed to when he was standing up, I suppose. But anyway, he runs back to camp, and Penny's outside and he grabs her and runs inside the spaceship and closes the hatch and starts screaming for help. He's in a real panic. Everybody runs in, what's going on? And he demands that they arm themselves against a veritable horde of alien monstrosities. And, well, wh- it could be thousands. Yes. <laughs> and he says, well, what did you see? Well, I, it, it defies uh, description. And uh, John sort of seems skeptical, but I love this line. Smith boasts that he has extrasensory perception when it comes to danger. <laughs> I guess yeah. it takes one to know one, I guess. Yeah. Sure,
4: and then and, uh then the the creature comes into view i say creature but it's basically this little uh oversized uh toy in the eyes of uh a uh, will and penny but to smith it's this giant monstrosity and she says well that doesn't look so dangerous to me and smith retorts you know whose opinion are you going to take that of a mere child or mine
0: and of course we're all thinking well obviously we'll believe the child <laughs> yeah well the, the the music is telling us it's it isn't safe because it's very threatening music and smith even has the line at least we're safe in here right before <laughs> before oh yeah don don pipes in a It's dematerializing, and shock. Yes, shock. It's a great effect.
4: (laughs) It not only does it dematerialize. At first, it dematerializes, and you go. Whoa, that's kind of cool. But then it rematerializes inside the craft. So suddenly what, you know, we were kind of getting calmed down about, yeah, even Penny doesn't think of that scary and everything. But now this thing can basically just go through solid steel doors. And if it can do that, who knows what else it can do.
0: I like how everyone is instinctively backing away. And then uh, sure enough, we have to wait as we go to opening credits to find out what's happening. Oh dear.
4: Now, of course, while this is happening, we're all kind of calming down, and I'm thinking, okay, how long until Will, you know, goes out and tries to hug this thing? And it's not very long, is it?
0: No, because when we come back from credits, sure enough, Will makes a little move and accidentally bumps into the little crab, and all of a sudden all that mechanical noise just stops, and he's instantly deactivated.
4: Well,
0: not quite.
4: He moves towards it. It's actually John who steps in between him, and the device, and it's John who hits the device, and that's what deactivates it. So John was being the overprotective uh, parent.
0: Oh, okay. Well, I, I, I got confused because they kind of show you a shot of the feet, and I guess I, I mistook those for Will's feet when it bumped into the thing. So good, good catch. They're still presenting Zarrow as the big, you know, hero, and they're trying
4: to kind of shoehorn him into the star of the, the role, even though Zachary is stealing all the scenes.
0: <laughs> well, it's still a head-scratching moment, and everybody's sort of thinking, where did this thing come from? How did it get through that hatch, and what's coming next? And John says, well, let's take it down to the lab and, and investigate.
2: Apparently the central control unit is run by a selective computer, giving it a sort of free choice. But that still doesn't explain how it moved right through the hatch. Uh, Some kind of matter transfer. Matter transfer? Well, there used to be a wild theory that uh, molecular structure could be broken down and reassembled at another point. (laughs) Maybe it's not so wild anymore. We can be sure of one thing. Whatever
3: sent that is an extremely intelligent form of life. I strongly suggest you destroy this diabolical machine at once.
4: Why? It's not doing us any harm.
3: As always, you speak with the trusting innocence of youth who knows the evil purpose of this outlandish contraption. Now, Will's right.
2: This is nothing more than a harmless data computer. Geologic samples. Probably takes atmospheric ones as well. What do you think, Don? Some warner or
3: some things making tests to determine whether this planet is conducive to another form of life.
1: You mean we
2: write out visitors?
3: Invaders would be a better word. Again, I suggest you destroy this thing immediately.
2: Good thinking, Smith. Once again, our good doctor has the solution to
1: the problem.
3: Destroy it. My primary concern has always been for the welfare and survival of
1: all. You're a self-centered, selfish individual whose primary concern is only one thing, himself.
2: And you, Major! All right, that's enough out of both of you.
4: What do you think we should do, Dad?
3: Nothing for the time being. Tomorrow morning, Don and I will scout around. Maybe we can find something new. Mark my words. If you don't destroy this monstrous thing at once ruin and disaster will follow, we will all suffer a horrible fate. That is my final word on the subject. Now I'm going to the galley to satisfy the needs of the inner man. He's oh, too much.
2: Too much.
0: Yeah, and I like how Don quickly becomes the dove here, and he criticizes Smith for... Uh, his first inc- instinct being to destroy first and ask questions later. So that's quite yeah, a that's, flip between yeah. uh, when Smith was calling Don, you know, the military mind, all they know is to kill or be killed, you know.
4: Well, not to wax political, but I mean, it, it's reminded me so much of Republicans and Democrats, you know, they they flip flop. When Clinton lies about sex, then it's like, impeach him. And then when Trump lies about sex, it's like, impeach him. You know? And right. they were both defending the other position just 10 years prior. so uh-huh. <laughs> It's easy to trade places, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And
0: that's certainly what was probably uh, motivating Don. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, neither John, Don, or Will are ready to follow Smith's dire warnings to destroy it. And Smith is feeling very rebuffed, and uh, he decides it's time to leave the group and retire to the... Uh-huh the galley and what a wonderful uh parting he does
4: now i'm going to the galley to satisfy the needs of the inner man
0: (laughs) (laughs) Ah! and speaking of the galley it's almost dinner time and maureen comes in and tells the group that uh, judy and penny are outside getting vegetables from the hydroponic garden for dinner but first she brings out this beautiful chocolate cake and i guess that that computer really can't bake because it was cherry pie last time and now it's chocolate cake and it does look yummy Yes, and uh, everybody's uh,
4: smacking their lips at this until they're just about to cut it.
0: And Smith even pipes and says, Madam, would you please make my piece especially generous? I've had a tough day being f- fighting off crab droids and watching the skies for rescue missions.
4: <laughs> yes, and so he's particularly disappointed when suddenly the cake disappears.
0: Right before she can slice it. <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> makes the same sound effect. Well, actually it doesn't. It's a different, it's the same sound effect we've heard in all the other things appearing and disappearing, but that's not the sound effect that the droid made when it disappeared. It did no. a slow disintegration. Right. So. This one... I love the sound, by the way, of that droid. It's a cool,
0: uh, metallic, spooky sound that it makes. It is. But, uh... Yeah. Well, everybody moans in disappointment when that cake is gone and I don't blame him. And Smith is instantly convinced it's a hostile act of a cruel adversary. And the, uh, Everybody does look disturbed, but they're really trying to hard to give that mechanical crustacean the benefit of the doubt.
4: Oh, but Smith has this wonderful little comment uh,
0: that he, he tosses into the mix. He says, how
4: long before they decide they need a human specimen? You yeah. know, which is very true, you know? I mean, come on. What are, you could disappear in the moment. And you've got this thing down in the storage, which we forgot to mention the moment they left. That
0: Droid reactivated. That's right. It, it came it, back on. It came back on by itself and it made a little threatening turn. And you know, he isn't wrong. You're right, and I was going to say that. I mean, he's played a little bit hysterical, and of course we're supposed to see here that Smith is this closed-minded xenophobe, and the rest of the the castaways are more welcoming and open-minded. But, you know, the points he's making shouldn't be discounted altogether. So Next, we cut to a short scene with John and Don searching the area for signs of the visitors, and they're walking by that familiar jungle rock wall, but they're armed at the teeth, so they may be open-minded, but at least they're prepared for trouble should it appear uh, um, trust but uh, verify yes. with guns yes with guns um, <laughs> not
4: just pistols but also the rifles
0: yeah and they don't have any luck they don't find anybody but uh, john says you know i want to be ready in case something happens because we can it's obvious that they're going to have visitors and then next we cut to another short scene will is all alone out in the rocky desert foraging for rocks and we hear this strange sound and he freezes and he observes a beam of light quote, falling from the sky, if you will. And then there's this glowing saucer-shaped object that materializes along with a tall alien. Now, what did you think of the look of that alien? Let's face it, after Invaders from the
4: Fifth Dimension, we're always going to be disappointed. But, you know, he looked suitably alien, and he looked as benevolent as an alien can look. You know, he had the golden hair with the, I think it was a turtleneck sweater and... A uh, gold chain on him with a amulet. You know, I mean, it's just—it seemed almost something taken out of central casting for the Angel of Light type of alien.
0: Yeah. Well, Matheson said in the book, he goes, you know, he he didn't really like the job they did with him. It wasn't the costume so much, but they put a ton of white pancake makeup and frosted and Brill creamed his hair. And he he described the look they gave him as a cross between a dead Incan and an Apache. <laughs> He didn't huh. think it looked very alien-like. But the the jacket that he's wearing, that Nehru jacket and the medallion, those were all costumes that were used by those aliens at the end of the Uneired pilot that we never got to see in this episode. So they recycled that. There's good old Irwin recycling again. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, before we go to commercial, Will sees all this. And he isn't frightened by the arrival of the alien visitor. He's just a little bit more curious. And he approaches and he starts to introduce himself. The alien is apparently the strong silent type because he merely stares back at Will and doesn't even really act like he understands what Will is saying. And Will gets a little bit spooked by that. You know, I mean, it doesn't scare him if it's this giant
4: machine that just, you know, makes uh, electronic zapping noises, but it does seem to scare him if it's a humanoid who doesn't respond to his questions.
0: When we come back from commercial, he's he's still standing there. But, yeah, he, he's looking, and then he gets scared, like you say, and he just starts running, and he's heading out to find the others. And he does quickly. He runs into John and Don, and he gives them the report about that beam of light and the strange alien, and he been, can barely get the words out before John gives him a little lecture about looking before you leap and checking with him first. And, you know, the same lecture he gives him every week, and the same lecture he always ignores. Yeah. I thought, I thought he had gotten this all worked out when he was telling him, when they could swallow last week but anyway <laughs> he gives the report and they say uh, lead on they, will takes them to the spot where he saw the alien and when they arrive the saucer device is there but there's no alien in sight well he's hiding right now uh, he's probably enjoying the last of that chocolate cake <laughs> <laughs> well did you notice that john was very quick to figure the whole thing out the the, the saucer is the uh, this obviously the matter transfer regenerator that reassembles the molecular structure it's kind of interesting yeah. how he knows it all this stuff. Yeah,
4: I'm, I'm beginning to think it's John that's the one that's got the ESP. I mean, he he <laughs> seems to deduce a lot of things in this particular episode that don't seem to have any <laughs> don't yeah. seem to have any uh, advanced knowledge for anybody else, but he just seems to know them.
0: Yes, he's he's very prescient, isn't he? And uh, Will wonders where the alien went, and he hopes that the alien will come back soon. And John says, well, that'll depend if he's a friend or an enemy. But Uh then as they leave, that alien appears from behind a rock, and he's staring intently as the Robinsons depart. And again, music is kind of giving us that feeling that perhaps Dr. Smith is right. These aliens just might be enemies after all. ¶¶ So back to the camp we go, and the girls, Smith, and the robot are all gathered around a table with that crab droid sitting there, and as the men return uh, from their search with word of their discovery, they tell the others what they saw, well, at least what Will saw about the alien. They didn't see him. But John mentions again, oh, that he arrived by way of matter transference. Yeah, and Judy uh, pipes up,
4: gee, I, I wonder why they haven't come to meet us. (laughs) Smith has a great line because their purpose is to destroy us that's why
0: (laughs) oh yes and John is quick to counter that the aliens can't be assumed to be hostile and he stresses a warning to Smith not to make any threatening moves lest they accidentally start some intergalactic war right off the bat and Smith reassures John that oh don't worry he's going to roll out the red carpet of course we know better and just at that moment right on cue two more beams of light are seen in the distance falling from the sky and I thought that was a pretty cool effect that time it was is cool because the beams are coming down through the clouds and they're not you don't see where they're landing because they're hidden by the a rocky hill uh and you know so it's it was really probably a very expensive animation to do but it sure added to that sense of nervous anticipation and i love that smith uh, he comments ominously that it's practically raining aliens
3: <laughs> it's positively
0: raining aliens I have to say I'm with Smith
4: on this one. I mean, just ask our Indians. You, you don't want to be overwhelmed by colonists, okay? They need to build that wall, and they need to get the aliens to pay for it. <laughs> of course, the only problem is, is that the aliens don't dig underneath this wall. They literally transfer through it, so it's it does uh, muddy the water somewhat. It does. It does.
3: If you were endowed with emotions, my mechanical friend, you would no doubt be filled with curiosity about why we're here. Well, I'll tell you. We are going to the campsite of the alien visitors.
1: The question's obvious. Why?
3: Because they are people of a superior intellect, and so am I.
1: You have yet to answer the question.
3: One reason is that we have so much in common. They will get along well with me and I with them. We can be of great help to each other.
1: One hand washing the other, as you have said. Exactly.
3: All right, my metallic crustacean, go back where you came from. And you, my friend, you will await my return. Here.
0: carrying that crab droid this time, which is a little odd because he was so wary of it
4: earlier. Yeah, well, he. it is worth mentioning that they had asked the robot uh, what what to expect, and the robot computed... Uh, based on its limited information, that they were dealing with warm-blooded mammalians, our size. So that might have given Smith some bravery where he might not otherwise have had it.
0: Yeah, but at least he's armed with a laser pistol, which
4: also always spells tr- <laughs> trouble. Yeah. Well, if anybody could be an a, a interstellar collaborator, it's Dr. Zachary Smith. I'm sure he'll... He'll do the uh, human trader race proud, mm. some way, somehow.
0: He arrives, and we see the aliens have quickly set up a little campsite of their own, and I thought their, their little campsite was kind of interesting. What did you think? That's the thing I remember. Now, it's possible they did this with a lot of different
4: campsites, and that's what I'm remembering, but I just remember as a kid how weird it was to have this round circle where the sand is suddenly basically melted away and they're in this flat area now of course now I recognize it's because they're on a sound stage and they just swept the sand away but as a kid you know you're trying to make sense of this and like why in the desert would it like burn this like smooth area where they're having this little campsite so it it fascinated me then, and it, it's something I still remember.
0: Yeah, and there's also a cool part. The, there's this huge rock formation at the backside of their location. You saw that. Yeah, yeah and and it, it got and,
4: melted through the rock, too. Yeah,
0: it's almost like a smooth finish. Like the, the, the beam of light came down and it, it melted that the ground and it also carved out that uh, wall. It's, it's a very cool effect. And of course, it's suitably furnished with futuristic equipment and tables and chairs and everything. It's very space agey. But we do get a good first look at the alien monster. Mom, Moella and she's uh, sporting an interesting space-age hairstyle worthy of Princess Leia but I have to say that Francois Ruggeri is quite beautiful and and I took a liking to her right off the bat even though she doesn't say a word
4: well you know
0: I told you I didn't want to wax political but
4: somebody's got to say this that alien strikes a uh, strange uh, resemblance to Donald Trump in the 1970s and 80s and if that's not weird enough his wife looks a lot like uh, Melania and mm. apparently has a, 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 an accent, too. A- and then if that's not weird enough, wait until you see the kid who looks uh, very much like Baron. Mm. So this is like the little trumps running around in the 1960s. But, you know, <laughs> hey, it's lost in space. Who knows what can happen?
0: Who knows what can happen? Well, Smith introduces himself with all of his uh, Eddie Haskell charm that he can muster. But the aliens. Just seemed bemused, if not outright confused, by Smith's flowery intro. Apparently, these aliens aren't shy, though they just don't communicate with spoken words, which uh, is again interesting. That Lost in Space is not going right away with that whole bit of the English-speaking aliens, and I do like that.
4: Yeah, and but they don't—they don't seem to talk at all. They don't turn to each other and go, I "Ain't all playing by oh yeah." Or nor do they have like you know their temples fluctuate as they communicate telepathically. It's just like they just seem to either know what the other person wants or they communicate with a stare or look in the eye. It's very perplexing. Did, did it, they say anything about this in the book?
0: Yeah, well, they did make mention of the fact that the aliens were supposed to, in the script, communicate through sort of an electronic tonal sound. And the only indication that we get of that is later in a scene where I assumed it was just the sound of like a a calling siren or something like that calling ah. the little boy back from mm-hmm. when he's meeting Will, but that's actually supposed to be the alien's voice. That uh, and perhaps it's only something that they can hear, like a dog whistle. Maybe Will doesn't hear it at all. It's le- it's left it's left ambiguous. But... Well, it's probably
4: good that they don't do that in other places because talk about an alarmy way to communicate. I mean, that's like something right out of. Uh... Uh, invasion of the body snatchers at the end, you know, when Donald Sutherland points out and it goes, you know, this terrible siren.
0: If an alien did that to me and that's the way they communicated, I would hightail it out of there. Yeah. I did notice a bit of a blooper I don't know if you caught this or not, but when Dr. Smith is first introducing himself and he's walking towards the alien with his hand outstretched, it's a tracking shot. And did you notice how the dolly must have rolled over some rocks or something? Because there's two very, very noticeable shakes of the camera. And it seemed like the kind of thing that they would have just done a retake on, but I guess old Sobey wanted to keep his job, so they just kept rolling and said, "Uh, that's a good enough, we'll keep that one in the can. Yeah, the directors who
4: keep their job with Irwin Allen are the ones who are not the total... Perfectionist, and uh, I guess that this is an example. Although I have to say, I didn't really notice that, or if I did notice it, it didn't affect me.
0: So no. it's probably a, a good call. It's worth keeping no. this job over. Yeah, it's probably a good call, I suppose. But uh, Smith is trying to gather information from the aliens, and they don't speak. But he start so he starts to use some sign language and. Uh, I don't know how he gets this, but out of that, he determines that oh, thousands more are coming soon, and he continues to try to negotiate and ingratiate himself with the, the aliens. He says, you'll need someone here to control the natives, and he's offering his, his services in that regard. Now, the alien mother is sort of giving some concerned looks, and the dad, he's not responding at all, except he makes a little gesture with his hand towards Smith's laser pistol, and Smith reacts right away to that oh, no, sir,
4: I'm not willing to trust you that much because it, it, he's almost suggesting that he hands him the weapon. And, and Smith, you know, there's no way he's going to do that. And Smith pulls his weapon and puts it out between him, which, of course, is the, the worst possible thing he can do, which only
0: excites the uh, alien's wife. Yeah, she runs and grabs their gun, which I thought their gun was pretty cool, too. It had kind of this big uh, plexiglass stock and everything, but it's, a, it's turned into a Mexican standoff for a minute. and Smith quickly decides that discretion is the better part of valor, so he retreats back to the camp, but not without a parting remark. Just remember, you started this fight. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know about using uh,
4: any weapon with a plexiglass stock, even if it is just a laser weapon. I mean, if the thing's got the slightest bit of kick, it can, you know, cut your arm off. It uh, looked like a big shard
0: of glass as far as I was concerned. But it did look different. Yeah, the look was the important thing, I guess, that not the practicality of it. So we cut back to the moat again, and Will is rock hunting there, and we see the little alien boy Lunon for the first time, and he's observing Will, and Will tries to communicate with the alien boy, and it's not really clear to me if the alien boy understands him. He seems to be acting friendly towards Will, and Will is certainly trying to act friendly towards the boy, and he keeps saying, you know, I'm a friend, I'm from Earth. And the music again is, is communicating to us that this isn't a meeting of, enemies that the kids are trying to get along but before we can get too much accomplished we get to hear that high-pitched tone that I was talking about the before. siren yeah, yeah the siren which and, is
4: alarming it's an alarming sound you're sitting there thinking you know something's gone wrong here
0: yeah and and Lunan just drops everything and quickly runs back home and Will's confused and says wait I was only trying to be friends and, and you know he's not sure if he did something wrong or whatever but anyway this the last scene of Act 2 starts back at the camp that night the gang is all sitting around the table and Will is telling 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 everyone about the alien boy
2: he was just like us except he dressed differently you know something it's extremely possible that they came here to accomplish what uh, we originally set out to do you mean to find a planet suitable for colonization Mm Mm-hmm. we know they
3: require the same atmospheric conditions we need
1: i don't think we have anything to worry about the boy was real friendly
3: which only proves that you're too young to be a good judge of character It so happens that I've just paid a visit to the campsite of the enemy. What do you mean, the enemy? Their attitude was hardly what I would consider hospitable. Decidedly aggressive, as a matter of fact.
2: Will met one of their boys. He had a little trouble communicating with him.
3: I had no difficulty whatsoever. For instance, I've learned that an infinite number of their species are due to arrive. We will be a pitiful handful against thousands dedicated to our destruction.
4: I just can't believe it. I could tell we liked each other.
3: An alien race will. Their emotional responses could be the direct opposite of our own. A laugh could mean deep hatred, while a frown could be the friendliest of expressions.
2: Dr. Smith,
3: I don't want you to go near that campsite again. I don't know what that would have been. Now, they
2: obviously know
3: where we are.
2: And when they want to contact us, they will. In the meantime, there's every chance that we can live in peace with them. Provided we don't spoil
3: it by acting prematurely. You're making a mistake. We are dealing with a hostile, aggressive people. We must act immediately. Force is all they understand. Smith, have you ever in your life had a good thought? I am a realistic man, Major. Only a fool closes his eyes to the truth. But let's examine the situation, shall we? You think our visitors are friendly? All right. Suppose they are. But how long do you think that will last? On the one hand, tens of thousands of aliens, and on the other hand, ourselves. Eventually, we will become the curiosities. Outlandish creatures to be pointed out and stared at. Freaks, animals. That's what we will appear to be to them. And then what do you think will happen? They'll put us into cages. Hurry, 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 see the strange creatures, watch them eat, drink, sleep. Only a quarter, folks.
2: Oh, Dr. Smith, please do sit down and have some dinner.
3: Thank you, no, madam. Although I am a condemned man, I cannot eat a hearty meal. (laughs)
4: Yeah, and they're going to treat the humans like like freaks. Yes. They'll just be little curiosities to round up and put in a zoo.
2: Yeah.
0: And and the things he's saying, like you say, is like in in an alien culture, a smile could mean deep hatred. That's not ridiculous. How do they know? And the aliens uh, could in short time, outnumber the Earthlings. And even if the aliens aren't openly aggressive in time, they could start to regard the Robinsons as threats or curiosities. So I know that we're supposed to think Smith is being absurd and, and alarmist and everything, but the things he's saying aren't actually all that outrageous. I mean, they are something that should be considered, but... uh Yeah, well, it's, it's like the old adage, you know, you're not being paranoid if they
4: really are out to get you, and... uh you know th- these sorts of things do happen. You know we weren't exactly very pleasant to the Indians, as I alluded to earlier, and uh, all because the uh, the ones on the beach welcomed our pilgrims that started their <laughs> eventual right. ending. So, yes, oopsie yeah. daisy. Yeah, We're, we don't learn very much from that, do we? No, no. Uh, Don comes back with a great rejoinder. He says, "Smith, don't you ever
0: have a nice thought?" <laughs> <laughs> So Act 3 starts off with a series of short scenes. We're going to jump back and forth with different looks. The first, we're back at Will's rock hunting spot, and Lunan approaches Will again, and he has something with him this time. It's a small ball, and he approaches Will, and he offers the ball to him, and he motions for him to throw it away, which is... A little confusing to Will, but eventually he does throw it away, and it's kind of cool because it's sort of like a boomerang. It flies away and then flies back to him. I thought that was kind of neat. Yeah, it's reminiscent of that
4: scene where Luke Skywalker is doing his uh, practicing the lightsaber with the flying ball that shoots a little photon uh, blast at him or whatnot, and it just floats around
0: and uh,
4: comes right back to you. What kid wouldn't love something like that? Oh,
0: yeah, I sure would have liked it, but that moment of cosmic friendship is soon spoiled because... Will must have some allergies. He sneezes, and Lunan instantly becomes ill, and he just almost practically collapses.
4: Yeah, I mean, talk about fast-acting uh, germs. I mean, mm. this stuff didn't even have a chance to uh, wiggle up his nose before. He literally grabs his chest
0: and falls. Yeah. So Will helps the weakened alien boy to shelter in a nearby cave. It seems like there's always a handy cave somewhere in Lost in Space. And yeah. we jump back to the Jupiter, and Maureen is concerned now because she can't find Will. And John walks... In and he doesn't seem concerned at all, and he's sort of humoring her, but she could sense he's worried, and and she says, uh, you know, well, I'm just a little bit worried, and John says, would you like me to go out and hunt for him? And she says, yes.
4: <laughs> so yeah, and it, she she issues the most laughable line of the entire episode, which is something along the lines of, it's just not like Will to disobey me, right? I what? That.
0: <laughs> no, not Will. And
4: what's to worry about? I mean, you know, he's probably off just befriending another giant cyclops or something, but mm. no, they, uh, like you say, Zoro gives this very uh, knowing smile, like, oh, okay, I'll go, you know, I'll
0: humor you. Right. And uh, he agrees to go find him. Yeah. So then we cut to the alien campsite and we're having a similar scene play out there The the alien mother, she's also worried because it's getting late and her son hasn't returned either. And she's sort of trying to keep herself busy, there's some mugs on the table with some sort of steaming stuff in there, and she doesn't... Yeah, have... hot, hot smoothie, hot alien smoothie or something. <laughs> Spinach sauce. Who knows? Well, yeah, something very cosmic, very uh, otherworldly. And the alien father tries to comfort her, but we sense that she's not going to be able to relax until her son's back in her arms either. So then we yeah. cut to the cave, and Will is doing his best to tend to the sick alien. He keeps talking to him without really knowing if the alien understands, but that's good because at least we, we get to hear what Will is thinking and he says something like you know both their parents are going to be worried about them but he doesn't feel like he can leave the little boy alone in the cave by himself so they're just going to have to hunker down until either somebody finds him or Lunan gets well enough to travel i suppose so
4: now was it just me or did didn't that appear like that rock formation was the exact same cave that they went into when they found the lost
0: city yeah, well, it it does look sort of similar, at least the the entrance to it. I'm sure, sure. I'm sure it's probably the same cave. They just redress it multiple yep, yep. times for different purposes. But yeah, I
4: could have sworn it. Uh, you know, you add the lightning bolts and, and the chariot, and you have that same scene as before when they go mm. in there.
0: But I did have a question for you too. I thought Will at one point had told us he always carries a radio for just such emergencies. I wonder why he doesn't have one now.
4: Because that's at the
0: bottom of the uh, quicksand pit. <laughs> oh, yes, I forgot about that.
4: So uh, Next we cut oh, to... Oh, but jo- I, here's a question for you. If he always carries the walkie-talkie, why did his father and his mother go out in the chariot
0: looking for him? Why not just turn on the t- walkie-talkie and call him that way? Hey, good point. Uh, well, yeah. then we couldn't use all that good chariot footage we had from the pilot. You know? Exactly. Uh, so... Now we see John and Don are searching for Will, and the alien dad is out searching for Lunon, but neither parent has any luck. And I think the, the alien dad, doesn't he find the ball that uh, Lunon yeah. was throwing earlier? So that's sort of giving him a sign that, hmm, I wonder what happens. But Yeah, uh, it
4: sort of uh, brought back those memories of you know, the... Somebody finding the floating flower after Frankenstein had drowned the child, you could see that he was concerned and you felt for him. And, yeah. you know, th- this whole juxtaposition of the human family and then the alien family, and they're
0: both worried about their son,
4: it's effective. I mean, oh, it really
0: is. It, it really is, and you know, you can uh, you can see why if you found that yourself, put yourself in his position, you'd be willing. You'd be willing to think the worst. All of a sudden, you'd be pretty nervous about the whole situation. Oh. As a
4: matter of fact, when they're there at dinner, you know, they can't. The wife can't get the husband
0: to eat. Both families, I seem to recall, have lost their appetites. That's right. That's right. The alien boy does look pretty sick, though. and He's laying on this bed of moss, and we cut back to the Robinson campsite, and now night has truly fallen will's not back and smith is outside alone with the robot and this is this is probably one of my favorite jonathan harris scenes of this entire episode because he begins this nice little soliloquy explaining the next stage of his plan to get the robinsons to finally realize they have an enemy at their gates what time is it
1: 1932 hours
3: i mean the real time not that ridiculous space jargon
1: it is 32 minutes past seven
3: past seven and our little will still hasn't returned eh one might almost suspect foul play
1: existing evidence does not bear out that supposition
3: evidence what do i care about evidence i need every tool at my disposal those aliens will have us in cages if we don't destroy them first
1: existing evidence does not no
3: shut up if the robinsons were to believe that their son was in the hands of the alien they might finally take the necessary action. Where emotion is involved, evidence is not required. Only the right word in the right ear at the right time. Don't look at me like that. I do not look, I
1: only stand.
3: You're probably thinking what kind of man would use a parent's love for his own preservation? And you're exactly right. My kind of man.
4: My kind
0: of man. That's who. <laughs> uh, it's great. Now, that that shot, Sobey must have been awake for that one because I love the way that whole thing was framed and everything. And, of course, Smith played it very well. And the robot's just playing the straight man, too, because, like you said, he goes, Don't stare at me. And the robot says, I don't stare. I only stand. <laughs> uh, it's a great back and forth. And then that leads us into the next scene. And, and we're really going to jump back and forth quickly here between the aliens and the humans. We're we're on the lower deck of the Jupiter. And Maureen is sort of nervously occupying herself. And Judy tries to reassure her that John will be back soon with Will, so don't worry. But then... Dr. Smith arrives, and he's all sunshine and smiles, and he's starting to put his little plan into effect, and he he compliments Maureen on her bravery, which kind of confuses her at first. Yeah, he uses some line comparing her to Spartan parents, you know, who
4: would rather their children come back on a shield than without it, you know, he doesn't, reference that line but that's what the the Spartan parents are famous for they you know they're willing to sacrifice their own children mm. and Marina kind of uh she she gets a little bit uh, offended by this but she hasn't figured out what his angle is right. and she is also terrified and worried about it too i mean he is definitely throwing
0: fuel on the the worry fire oh he is because he says you it, it, that that's the whole point he says i I'm, I'm so i'm so amazed at your bravery in the in the face of uh, what must be almost certain ghastly fate that has befallen her son in the clutches of those aliens. And she sort of lamely replies that, well, there's no evidence to, to fear the worst, but her tone is sort of telling us that she's starting to doubt as well. And then right at the end, before he <laughs> he departs, he goes, well, perhaps you're right, but who knows? Our only option is armed confrontation with the enemy. <laughs> Such a piece of work. He is. He really is. The, that little party is interrupted because Penny announces that John and Don have returned, so everybody starts to come up to see what's happening. It's interesting. John just walks right by Smith, who's trying to pipe up, I have a suggestion, and he doesn't say a word. And then it's Don's turn to take up for the boss, and he, he turns his frustrations on Smith as, I hey, keep your opinions to yourself, Smith. You you know, Don is really steamed, but Smith yeah. says, you know, it's obvious where Will is, and it's in the one place that you haven't bothered to look, the alien campsite. And he's right. Well, that
4: I mean, he's right in that that is the obvious place, but of course, Will isn't there. But that
0: would be the logical place to look. I mean, if you're looking for a lost child, I mean, come on. Right. He's right. You know, and you're right, too. He isn't actually there, but they haven't checked there. We cut back to the alien camp, and the mom is putting out (laughs) fresh steaming mugs of Grug or whatever it is they have. And the dad is staring off into the darkness, and he also looks concerned and not in any mood to eat either. Yeah, I was confused. I thought
4: that was the scene earlier when they were uh, eating. But no, they they had the concern without the food, the earlier scene. Now they've got the food, the hot steaming smoothies. And uh, I think it's got you know it's bubbling and there's some sort of weird fog coming up from it, so we know yeah. it's something exotic, and uh, and he he can't eat and she's uh, she's
0: worried and
4: it's your heart goes out to them.
0: Oh yeah, because it's it's basically both the alien parents and the earthling parents are the human parents are doing the same thing. They're, they're sort of mirroring each other's actions, you know? Yeah. So.
4: This is, this is that the cold, whether you call it the cold war analogy or is it the hot war analogy? This is something that, uh, is not an original concept, but you know, ultimately that's what everybody hates most about war is it's the little boys who go off and die. I mean, you know, yeah, they're 18 and 19 years old, but, Uh, they're not that far from Will's age, really, I mean, uh, and they just don't know any better, and they would have been best of friends if not for the fact that the, the parents or the diplomats that work for the other side, Mm. (laughs) or or work for the parents, hadn't misrepresented it or been more like Dr. Smith. But, you know, you say that, but at the same time, Smith has got his, his reasons too, and, and, you know, they are kind of being foolish by letting their guard down, but,
0: yeah, we, well, the next we get another scene, and this is all designed to push Maureen over the edge because Penny approaches Maureen while she's sitting in the galley lost in thought, and Penny's worried about Will, and she's especially worried because Smith has been sowing those seeds of doubt in her as well. And she admits that you know she agrees that with Dr. Smith that they're b- making a terrible mistake by not going to the alien camp to, to look for Will, and she says Judy agrees, and we can see in the look in her eyes she doesn't... She doesn't really agree with Penny, but Maureen is starting to weaken. And she says, well, we'll worry about that. Let's, uh, let's put everything away. She pops into the cabin where John is lying on the bunk on his back, and he says, I'm, I'm not asleep.
2: I'm not asleep. I know you weren't. I was just waiting for you to tell me. I was thinking about Will. So is everybody else. Especially you. John, maybe you should go to the alien camp. I thought of that too. One moment it's yes, next no. You see, if we, were, if we were on Earth, I'd know exactly how to handle this situation. But in this alien world with alien people, an alien morality. I know. It'd be just too easy to make mistakes. And I wouldn't want to do anything that we'd all be sorry for later.
4: it does it does remind you of so many of these political debates, you know I mean you could be a a war on terror or whatever, and say, like, oh, well, we don't want to cut back on any of the immigrants from uh, the nations that are trying to kill us <laughs> or whatnot. And, you know, yeah, they're just people like us. But at the same time, you know, yeah, but some of those people are trying to kill us. And it's it's not a simple uh, yes or no answer, is it? I mean, both sides have got their points on this thing. But John is acting like, you know, we know... What characters we would associate him uh, uh, up in Washington with? Who simply just refuse to even admit the possibility that the other side may have some evil intent for us, you know? And what's the harm in going and seeing if your kid is with the other family? Right. You know, we're not—they're not suggesting that they have to go there and kill him. I mean, of course, that's what Smith is suggesting, but that doesn't mean that he has to do that. But he's just so close-minded about it, and it really. Makes him furious that, you know, ah, oh, darn it, I am going to have to go <laughs> and look and see if Will's there.
0: Yeah, because we and ultimately that's what happens, because right before the act ends, we cut back outside. Don's out the side alone at night, and John walks up to him, and he says, you can't sleep either. No, they're all thinking about Will, and he says, well, I guess we know what we have to do. He's finally come around, and he says, well, I don't want to start a fight, but if I have to, I'll finish it, and we're going to go check on Will tomorrow. So... <laughs> When we get back from the break, the final act starts the next morning. The boys have resolved to go to the camp, weapons and all, and before they depart, an irritated Smith complains that uh, he's not happy that they had to wake him up so early, and he's glad that they're going, but why does he have to go?
4: We're going to find out why he really has to go, but he sounds like the the worst person in the world or off-world to take with you on one of these diplomatic missions. I mean,
0: <laughs> nothing good could come out of it. <laughs> yeah. He even says something like, I'm a scientist, not a fighting man. uh, In fact, yeah,
4: he actually says,
0: I'll only be in the way, you know. (laughs) Well, you can go for moral support, Don chimes in. And uh, I like this little bit, though. Right before they leave, there was a little moment. Judy starts to say something to Don, but before anything mushy can happen, we can hear the CBS sensors putting the brakes on that. So it's just sort of a knowing glance they give each other as they head off to uh, meet at the alien camp.
4: Yeah, and then then we cut to the the cave and Will is telling Baron, or I guess the star child, that he's going to try to take him back home at this point. It's sort of like, okay, well, you've you've been there all day. He's not healing on his own. What took you so long to get to this point? So now they're going to make out to try to find the camp where the, yep. the parents are.
0: Yep. Next we see the man approaching the alien camp, and Smith is appearing very agitated and nervous. It's uh, telegraphing something that's going to happen later. And the alien parents, I don't know if you notice this, they seem like they're in red, red alert. They're just standing still, mute as ever, and the mood is very tension-filled as the Robinsons approach. I notice they have a little cutaway scene, the alien mom. She grabs her weapon and takes cover behind a rock. John is approaching the, the alien dad, and that Jittery Smith and Don are back a little bit, and John warns once more no shooting unless he starts, yeah, which of course is like telling uh will you know you stay here and don't don't follow me, of
4: course, you know that's mm. the reverse psychology with Smith, Smith's going to pull that trigger
0: one way or the other, yeah. Well, John approaches, and he's he's really striking a non-threatening pose. He's got his pistol holstered. His rifle is just slung across his shoulder. But the alien dad has already got his weapon aimed at Robinson, and it's really tense. And John stops a couple—again, John's playing the peacemaker, as you say. He stops a couple feet away from the alien dad, and he makes another peaceful gesture. He ceremoniously unslings his rifle and unholsters his pistol and then dramatically drops them to the ground. Which is, a it seems to me to be a little hollow because
4: they can see over his shoulder that Smith and Don are aiming two weapons at them. You know, they've only got the one. And uh, it just seems
0: like, uh, you know, maybe you should have had them lower their weapons and put them on the ground too, but, you know. I think he's being... Yeah, it's a symbolic gesture more than anything else. But the alien does respond by lowering his weapon. Now, his wife is also back there behind a rock ready to... To cover him if need be. So John starts trying to indicate through sign language that he's looking for his boy, but the alien seems to be confused, and no, no, I'm looking for my boy. He sort of gives a different little height symbol with his hand. It, they do, it doesn't seem to be going well, and suddenly, Smith sees the alien mom sort of pop up from behind the rocks, and he panics of course, and fires. Fortunately, he misses her, and that does start a firefight. Oh, she fires at him with what I'll call the gyro ray, because
4: it, it sends kind of one of these... You know, Cheerio-type laser donuts at him, mm. and it it burns yeah, that was a cool. hole in the rock above him. Yeah, and it makes a cool sound too. Yeah. so uh, that was a fun animation. They got their money's worth in the special effects department this time.
0: Yeah, I liked all, I liked all that. But Pandemonium is really broken out now, and uh, John manages to run back to cover with Smith and Don, and he's not happy. Yeah, yeah I mean, but
4: you got you to give Smith credit. I mean, he
0: called this one, right? He said himself, I'll only get in the way. <laughs> Touche. But D- John is not happy with that trigger happy performance. And Smith says, Well, I, I saved your life. And he says, You lost your nerve. <laughs> <laughs> well, fortunately, Will saves a day here because he arrives right at the
4: perfect time with the uh, little baron uh, or the, the star child to reunite with the family
0: yeah he's he hears the sound of the fighting and he pauses and he he lays uh the child down and he says i'll be back and he runs towards the sound of the cannon so to speak and when he gets there he informs his dad and the other men about the sick alien boy and smith chimes in none of this would have happened if it hadn't been for you and he's sorry he that he had to stay out all night but he says he couldn't leave the boy alone and john forgives him quickly and he makes a command decision finally he's going to go get the boy and bring him back to the I- aliens for one final peace offering and he hopes he hopes he can make them understand this was all just a big misunderstanding
4: yeah this is john talking right now but then don don chimes in you can't they'll think that you had them all along
0: yeah which is a it's a good point
4: yeah and and john says well we got to try so yeah. you know they go ahead and uh, he he takes the child and he's going to approach the aliens and i think i think also uh uh some i think john actually says smith is right soon there'll be thousands of them and now is our only chance
0: right that's right he finally gave smith a little credit for Taking his point seriously, and he says that we've got to do something, um, and so he does it. And so, it's... He,
4: so he's going to approach with the, the child in his hand, and he's going to extend his germ-covered hand of friendship to
1: <laughs> to Trump, uh, probably yeah.
4: sneezing it just beforehand he literally cu- carries the boy in both hands. So if any of the germs that uh, Will gave him is now,
0: you know, triple. <laughs> yeah. Well, it reminded me of the way he did that. It almost reminded me of how you would t- take a, a, a lion cub back to its mother, you know, sort of, ser- he's sort of slowly lowering the child. He doesn't come right up to him. He, he drops them about two or three feet away. He doesn't drop them. He let- sets them down and the mother runs out and she clutches her son and, relief and then then before we love this she looks up and points an angry finger at John and it's sort of (laughs) Ja (laughs) Qs and we have to go back to commercial one more time. We come back from the commercial break and the standoff continues. And at the last second, Will runs out to save his dad. John sort of pushes him out of the way, but... uh... No, Will, no! Right, right. Oh, God, it's very tense. And the alien dad looks like he wants to shoot John, but he hesitates. And then the little alien boy gets up from his mother, and he walks towards Will. And the two boys shake hands, and everyone is relieved. Yeah, give me another dose of those germs there, Will. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe his immune system finally kicked in. Who knows? But the alien dad lowers his gun, and he eventually drops it to the ground as well. Uh, He approaches John, and John picks up the alien's weapon and hands it back to him. And so this is where, though, I thought the show's really the biggest misstep was for me, because we don't even really have any time to enjoy this kumbaya moment. The alien family, they all sort of clustered together, and in a second, from nowhere, another alien being comes down and zaps them away along with all their gear, their furniture, even their steaming little mugs are gone, and it's sort of like, well, that was really abrupt, and it was really awkward, too, didn't you think?
4: Yeah, yeah, it was pretty abrupt, you know, it's sort of like they they take the germs and they run, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, but then again, I guess, you know, uh, the big climax has occurred, so they're going to wind this thing up quick. You know, I was just surprised that the wife was the one, I mean, she clearly wanted her husband to shoot John at that point, you know? And I was just reminded of the old, the female is the deadlier of the species. <laughs> you well, know?
0: you know, don't they always tell you you never get between a, a mother baron or cubs or a mother lion? Yeah, they're very protective of their children. So I guess that that sort of makes sense. And again, we don't know how the what these aliens' uh, morality is like or their, their instincts or whatever. But one other point I wanted to make that I thought was just, this is just something that occurred to me, Previously, when the aliens had arrived, they all it was indicated that they all sort of came in on individual beams. But mm-hmm. when they left, they were all sort of grouped together, and they all went, looked like they went out on just one beam. And I thought to myself, well, I hope this really isn't like that movie, The Fly, and they're... Their molecules are all—they're <laughs> all going to get uh, jumbled up together at the other end. And the other along, thing... with, along with all the germs. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe the beaming kills uh, kills all the germs. Who knows? But the other thing is, now it's never explained, and it's just one of those random thoughts that came to my head. Do you did you envision that they were actually beaming all the way from their home planet, which, oh by the way, we find out is the planet Toron, I guess, because Professor Robinson. <laughs> when he's wrapping everything up is telling us the taurons have no resistance to our germs but did you get the idea that they were beaming down from a ship that was in orbit or were they coming back from the planet again it's speculation but i had always assumed that they they were beaming directly from their world but i just Uh, read another review of this online and they were saying that no they thought that there was a ship in orbit i i don't know where they
4: it's- yeah, I, I saw no evidence of that, and I'm I'm kind of surprised it didn't occur to me. But, uh, you know, again, I, we're trying to read too much into it. I admit, uh,
0: We're definitely overthink- <laughs> overthinking but, this. But one thing
4: that isn't overthinking is you talk about John talking about, you know, the thorns and the planet and everything. Where did he get all this information? Oh, yeah, the bit about he he talks about how when Will sneezed. Uh, it gave him the virus. Well, Will didn't have a chance to tell him that he sneezed. He didn't uh, give him any of that background. So, I mean, unless he found a copy of the script or he watched Lost in Space dailies before it was broadcast, it didn't make any sense.
0: Yeah. So he knows the names of the aliens. We don't know how. He knows that Will sneezed, although Will never told him, at least we never saw that. And he knows that the taurons have no resistance to our diseases. So, you know, he's really, like you said, he must have the extrasensory perception in this case. But before we close out, we get another final moment of comedy at Dr. Smith's expense because they find the little alien ball and Will says, go ahead, Dr. Smith, throw it. Yeah, and he does. And then he turns and looks at
4: at Will and says, now what? What? And of Just course, wait, and it cuts, and it shows it going around. Suddenly, it's back in the lagoon where they threw it earlier. <laughs> you, you caught that too, right? And they, they recycle that footage. They don't. They don't shoot anything new for that. And it whips around, and it hits him in the head, and
1: whack, 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 whack.
4: But mm. you know, uh, it was a satisfying little comic thing. But isn't that just like kids? You know, you get yes. them the world's coolest toy. I mean, it can be from the other side of the galaxy. Nobody else in the neighborhood has got it. And then they play with it once, and then they forget about it. You'll never see
0: this ball again. The box is more interesting than the toy or something like that, <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, okay. Well, before we go to the cliffhanger, let me ask you, what did you think about The Sky is Falling? I liked it. It didn't have uh, you know, scary,
4: cool aliens, but it certainly had aliens that you were uh, empathetic with. Even though it was so heavily preaching, this whole thing about why can't we all get along, kumbaya, disarm, you know, just that and the other thing. I guess they were rooting for uh, uh, Johnson versus uh, uh, Goldwater campaign or something. <laughs> but uh, whatever it was, uh, it was still fun. It was entertaining. And the emotional release was uh, very
0: satisfying. So I, I liked it. I liked it too, and again, it's probably just because we're so jaded now that I, I bristle a little bit anytime I feel like I'm being, you know, Preached to or manipulated. It's sort of like, you know, here's how you're supposed to think, folks. Here's who here's the good person, here's the bad person. But, you know, in the end, Dr. Smith got a few points in there. It was a satisfying story. It ended a little bit quickly for me, but there were some cool things like the the whole teleportation matter transfer stuff. They had some cool shots with the animations. You know, overall it was a it was a good one. I would I would give it a thumbs up overall. So Before we finish, we see the cliffhanger for this episode, and we'll go into this in more detail next time. We open with Dr. Smith. He's sunbathing on a chase lounge, complete in his full outfit. But he does have the eye protectors on. Yeah, the bug-eyed eye protectors. They always look (laughs) pretty crazy. yeah. And uh Don and Will are working hard repairing the chariot and Smith is blathering on about all of his great achievements and Don pipes in to ask, uh, "How about giving us a little help here?" And Smith is Smith resists at first, but Don makes a sort of a threatening move and Smith jumps up and all of a sudden he's very agreeable. They need a new fuel pack that needs to be installed in the back of the chariot, so he tells Smith to go over to the table and bring this uh this heavy bread basket size. I mean it's not even quite a bread basket size, it's a little tank over to the Jupiter 2, and he has to carry it all the way like six feet over to the back of the chariot and he's really put off by <laughs> by this. Uh, yeah,
4: I got I got the feeling that, you know, Don didn't really need Smith to do it. I mean it's it seemed like it was kind of dangerous for Smith to do, but Don just does it every once in a while to assert his control over
0: Smith. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, Go hand me that solar wrench. Yeah. Well, as a parent, I can say I've used that tactic before, too. <laughs> like it's always yeah. easier to do it yourself. but If you I'm going to wash
4: the... the dishes, I'm going to make you at least put them in the strainer, even though I'm standing right here.
0: Uh, that's right. So, but he does warn Smith, be careful with that fuel pack. It's highly volatile, and it could explode on contact with air. And Smith gives—I think this may be the first time we hear him go, never fear, Smith is here. But I'm not sure about no, that. No, we've heard, we've heard that before uh you're probably right but uh i thought it was well timed anyway so smith is resentful though because as soon as he gets uh to the back of the chariot no one's watching he sort of drops it right behind the chariot yeah. and-
4: which is just a it, it's just a spiteful move i mean you know what h- how much harder is it to set it down i mean he just right. does it and he looks at at uh don when he does it so you know mm. he's he's
0: just feeling spite sure So he he says, oh, I'm completely exhausted. I need to head off for a nap. And uh, It starts to
4: smoke. It starts smoking right then and there.
0: All of a sudden, Will says, do you smell something? And sure enough, it's really smoking now. And Will looks up, and Don says, run, get out of here. And Don grabs the uh, pack and throws it up into the air, and we get that wonderful, another wonderful freeze frame, I thought, because it's an above shot with that explosion in midair. We go to the freeze frame, and we're warned to stay tuned next week to find out what's going to happen as we go to end credits for The Sky is Falling.
4: Yeah, it's kind of interesting. They call this episode The Sky is Falling, and they end it with
0: them throwing something up in the sky,
4: but it's kind of the other way around.
0: Yeah, we will have to find out what happens in the end. I'm, I'm sure it's going to be fun. So For now, that wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing the 11th episode of Lost in Space titled Wish Upon a Star looking forward to that one so until then take care and we'll talk to you soon good night kurt watch the skies and good night thanks fellow galactic castaways for listening to the alpha control podcast please leave your comments or questions on our facebook page twitter or email us at alpha control podcast at gmail.com subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com that's l-i-b-s-y-n dot com or through itunes if you like the show please leave us a review as well thanks again and we'll see you next week same time same channel